Hi, and welcome to the Fractal Marketing Podcast. My name is Jared Doyle, and on this show, I take marketing questions from listeners and provide answers so that everybody who tunes in can learn a little bit more about marketing and hopefully find some ideas for their business. first question we have is from Selena, who runs tease.com.au, and that's T-E-A-S.com.au, who asked the question, with a rather low population density, yet first world GDP in Australia, how does someone choose a niche? How niche is too niche? Is there a golden figure or clever way to say, yep, this is a mature marker for X or no, it's way too small? Thanks a lot. Thanks for the, uh, th- thanks for the question. Look, first things first, just as I stumble over the word niche right at the beginning of my podcast, for anyone who's listening uh, in the US, that would be a niche. It's probably a little bugbear for most Australians and Brits that um, we, <laughs> there's different ways to pronounce that word, but in Australia, we say niche. Look, great question. I think the first thing I want to say is just, I love a good domain name. Not directly related to your question, but tease.com.au. As someone who's worked in the domain name industry for a while, one of the things I love is, is a domain that's just easy to say, easy to spell, and the kind of, to quote the Ronsell brand campaign, uh, it does what it says on the tin. So good work on that one. To get more into your question, is there an easy way? Look, I guess I can give you a, a roundabout answer. And that's to say, for me, the trick with niches is actually to go as niche as you can at the start. I think one of the traps we get into with business is we try to go too broad. And I guess that brings in the second part of your question, which is, you know, have we gone too niche? Well, I guess it depends on the way you're looking at it. If one part of your question is, is the market big enough to justify? That's a bit different to, are we going too niche? In my mind, one of the key things to do when you're starting a business or running a business is to go as niche as you can at the start. So what that means is you're better off winning over a really small audience and turning them into absolute evangelists for your brand. So what I mean by that is, It's really hard to be everything to everyone. So obviously, there's going to be so many tea drinkers, but even tea drinkers are a really broad set. So I think the trick is to get that niche as tight as you can and to play around with that. So obviously, an easy market to define is people who drink tea. But that, again, is is quite a broad market. I drink tea, not a huge amount. The tea I drink, I describe as Brickie's tea. So... How do you appeal to me or is there a niche market in that? Well, just, I mean, it's always easy to use yourself as an example. So the way I'm thinking about it is I am a dual citizen living in Australia, born in Australia, but lived for 10 years in the UK. And there's one thing I picked up in Britain, it's that Brits drink tea more than they drink coffee. So already I'm thinking of of a niche market, which is British expats living in Australia. Now, even that in itself is is quite a big market to go after. But it's interesting because by niching that one level further, you've already started to create a, an idea in your mind's eye of a persona of who we might actually be going after. So what I'm thinking about now is I'm starting to imagine the British person who's in Australia, who doesn't have a great tea selection or doesn't quite understand why Australians are so obsessed with coffee and not drinking tea. And to that end, you know, I think about tea and I think, you know, this is a good long game for you. This is... um. Australia is obsessed with coffee at the moment. And I say at the moment in the sense that coffee's got a few hundred years of history, whereas tea's based on thousands of years of history. So if I was going to take a bet um, for the long-term play, tea seems like a better one. It also seems like the slightly more mature option, which I think comes down, which I think you could play into with your marketing as well. So what I mean by that is, I guess I'll try to explain through an analogy. But, you know, thinking back a long time ago, so 
whatever it is, 20 plus years ago when I sort of, I guess, first became legal to start drinking or there thereabouts, everyone's drinking spirits or beer. Beer was the, you know, the, the easy drink, if you like. And then over the next few years, people started to introduce wine. And it wasn't, no one really loved wine the first time, but it, it was that sophisticated answer. And, and, and wine was more multidimensional. I mean, obviously, you start looking at red wine and white wine, and then there's types of grapes for the red wine, and then there's regions and price points and styles. And I think tea's in the same position. I think tea's something where you can win over an audience, and then when you win them over, you create that level of sophistication. But anyway, I'll get to that in a second. I think it's actually key to, to break down niches even further. So again, thinking about myself, I you know the second job I had coming back to Australia five years ago was working at an ad agency uh, at iProspect. And one of the things that amazed me about iProspect was the fact that half of the staff were British. Now, they were either born in Britain or had dual citizenship, or a lot of them had permanent residency, but half of the few hundred people working for iProspect were British. Across the advertising industry, I'd suggest um, it could be as high as 30, 35% of the people working in the Adland industry in Australia are British which then creates a really interesting niche because all of a sudden now we've got probably higher educated. They're going to be typically 20 to 40 years old. A lot of um, Brits sort of at around 40 years old start to think about moving back to Britain or back to Europe in some way. But we're starting to, to narrow that niche down. Now, why does that matter? I mean, we're not restricting our potential market. What we're doing is creating a more narrow persona the kind of customer that we want to win and turn into an evangelist. So in my mind's eye now, I'm thinking about advertising professionals, working long hours, trying to be creative, keep clear of mind, trying to be a bit healthy whilst probably still working in a desk job, British, so a natural born bias towards tea over coffee, and probably a, a higher than average disposable income. One of the other interesting things about the expat community and, and um I guess the advertising industry is that the time demands on you means that you're probably less likely to have a family. So maybe I'm higher income, but more disposable uh, without the kids, without the burden. Maybe you don't actually have the mortgage as well. So what we've done here is we've really tried to come up with an idea of who we're targeting. And by niching down to that level, what we're going to do is attempt to create a marketing campaign that entirely focuses on that one persona, that quite micro niche. That's not to say we only want to sell to the British expat community in the advertising space between 20 and 40 years old to higher income, higher education, no kids, no mortgage. But what it is is to say we can create a positioning for the T around that. Now, when it comes to positioning with the T and the niche market, what we want to do is start to step that T up beyond the kind of what the tea does, like the actual ingredients, um, and really move into why you would drink certain kinds. Now, having looked at the website, I can see actually you guys are definitely moving in this place. And I can see that the copy that you've got in your website, but I wonder whether or not there's a way we can lift that to a higher level. So what I mean by that is, um, I'll use another example of a different industry. If you look at some of the juices that are out there at the moment, so the premium cold pressed juices, I go along to Woolworths, I have a look at the cold pressed juice section. And what's really interesting about it is often on the labels amongst all the ingredients and the benefits and the vitamins and minerals that are listed there, what really gets my attention is the fact that they often get labeled to do something. So what I mean is I can pick up a juice that has lemon juice, orange, ginger, and that'll be an immune juice. 
you know, boost your immunity or get over a head cold. And all of a sudden, we're taking something that we kind of intrinsically know or maybe is inferred and bringing it up that level. So I noticed on your website, there's some great features there. We talk about cleansing teas. Well, I think that's the kind of benefit we really need to hone down on. And, and so rather than kind of making a selection about what's the type of tea that I'm getting, what do I want the tea to do for me? What's, what am I looking to achieve? And so all the website, all the copy, the retargeting, the articles, the blogs, I can already see that you've got that messaging. And I think if we can tie that really nicely around a really tight niche, we're going to be in a great position to market the product. So getting back to, I guess, where you started with the question, the way I think about it is what we want to do is take that niche, tailor our copy, tailor our ads, the way we describe the product, what it does for me. Does it? Am I buying teas that give me energy in the morning, cleansing teas in the afternoon, teas that help me go to sleep at night, clarity of mind, teas that sort of lend to sophistication, things that I might be able to tailor around a working life of an advertising professional, and then package those teas up in that way and sell to that niche audience and win them over. The great thing is, once you get yourself into the headspace where you're thinking about that niche market, it opens up niche marketing opportunities. So then finding brand evangelists, finding you know advertising professionals with high net promoter scores for you creates another opportunity. You're able to go to places like Marketing Week, Ad News, Mumbrella, and pitch the idea that the advertising industry is moving towards tea with the high demographics of British people coming across, turning us from the nine cups of coffee and, and feeling clogged and, and fuzzy headed. Um, we're moving into tea, which is a more cleansing, sophisticated palate drink. And we start to create this idea amongst this niche that tea is the choice you know, of the, of the successful high-level advertising executives. And so you see where we would never have been able to get maybe a, a PR piece into ad news, all of a sudden, because we've niched down, we're able to do that. Now, that's not to say you have to stop there, but this great thing happens, and I'll um, kind of paraphrase and badly reference Seth Godin here. He talks about tribes in his book. I think it's actually called Tribes. And one of the things I really took away from that is that people aren't members of a single tribe. So what that means is I might work in the advertising industry. I might be a dual citizen, British, Australian. I might be male. And these are also different tribes. So one tribe can be around Adland. One tribe can just be around your gender. One tribe can be about being a dual citizen. But I can also be a father. I can also be a Star Wars geek. I can also be a soccer fan. I can be lots of different things. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if you win me over to T in my dual citizen, 25 to 40 year old male, hardworking advertising professional persona and that tribe, and that becomes standard, well, I can bring that tribe to the next level or to the next tribe that I'm part of. And it might be that I'm able to bring it to a world of school or, you know, me as a dad or other social circles that I'm able to get into. And that is the way you can take one niche or one tribe and move it into the next. So I think it's an interesting um, positioning. And I think, I guess what I'm getting at with this whole thing is, I guess, two things. One is, I think you need to niche down. I think absolutely niche down to the tightest audience you can, which allows you then to create evangelists, you know, get that high net promoter score. And once you've got that, you've got a fan base, a supporter base that don't just buy your product, they rave about it. I think it's important that you 
Absolutely, Ben. Once you've got those niches, focus down onto the why are people drinking tea? Not just I'd like a black tea or a green tea or the ingredients or whether it's got ginger or not. What we're trying to do here is talk about the benefits of tea. We're trying to sell the whole idea. And part of this education process is not just to sell to new customers. It's absolutely crucial in the way that we do our marketing that we take these great, I guess, rationales as to why I drink tea. Um, the irony here being often the the logic, not the heart, the head logic here is something we apply after a purchase, a post-purchase rationalization of our decision. And this is the great thing you've got. You've got email addresses, you've got Facebook fans, you've got retargeting pixels. This is where you're able to educate your existing customer base and give them a rational reason as to why they bought the tea in the first place. They want to bought the tea of the heart. You know, you pitched in the idea they can work harder, longer, stronger, smarter. So they bought the tea to, to be better at their job. But actually, what you need to do after that is give them the rational arguments. So when they've got a high net promoter score, they're inclined to promote to other people, to talk to other tribes. That's when we take the rational things and we pitch those into other people. So by niching down, we can create, you know, the 10 out of 10 net referral scores. Give the people who are giving us these scores the argument, the rationale, the reasons as to why they want to promote your, you know, tease.com.au. And then I think you're going to be in a great place to go from niche to niche to niche. Look, if you really wanted to, I mean, the other thing, great thing about the web is it is completely possible to produce multiple brands without a huge amount of effort. So it is possible that you could have one, I guess, like holding brand, if you like, and then you can actually produce sub brands under that. So it could be for the advertising executive, you could have an entirely separate brand and domain, although the whole back end and processing is all the same, but you could bring those people in. So there's lots of different options open to you. So that's, I guess, my view on the, the niching side of things. Um, the other part of the question was around the size of the, the market. Look, I think the trick is, whilst you're expanding those niche markets, is to recognize that, look, I don't think there's Australia's too small of a market to make this work, but it is a premium product. It is going to require you to win those niches over to expand out. So I just really focus on winning group to group to group as you expand your market. I've got a general feeling that, you know, you're backing the right trend. I'd rather be selling top-end quality teas um, much more than I would be coffee. I think coffee is a much more competitive market. I think you're on a better long-term game with tea. I think it's more sophisticated. What you need to do, though, is you need to bring that purchase decision up into more around why I'm drinking tea, what's in it, what's, what's the result going to be of drinking tea, as opposed to the actual tea itself. Again, it, it's in the copy on the website. I can see the messagings there. I think maybe just commit wholeheartedly to the idea that I'm not selling tea, I'm selling clarity of mind or, or, or a positioning statement that you can go with. So I hope that's been a help. Um, I'm going to post, obviously, the podcast. Um, of course, I've got your details, so more than happy to do follow-up questions um, afterwards. Um, and then we're going to move on to our second case study. So the second case study we have today is from Brand Hub. So, um, so that's Brand Hub, which is B-R-A-N-N-D-H-U-B.com. Um, who come with the question, how does an online service-based business effectively market itself? So Brand Hub is um, targeting small businesses, medium businesses, startup firms, etc. Um, and they professionally develop names and slogans for entrepreneurs, businesses, and brands. So this is a tough one for me because I think my first instinct is to test the name, your name itself, which is Brand Hub. And a test um, I was given by a good friend of mine from evergreen.com domains is what she calls the radio test for domain names, which is 
if you can't say it on the radio without having to spell it out, it's probably not a fantastic brand. And the reason why I bring this up is the difficulty I think you've got at the start is that Brand Hub in its own self doesn't necessarily pass the radio test because for me to spell it out, I have to actually, or for me to explain exactly who you are, I have to mention the double N. So for me, I think, you know, one of the core things is going to be not to fall into that trap of being, you know, the mechanic's car, sorry. This is, you know, the idea that, you know, you look after everyone else's brand, but not your own. So I think it's going to be absolutely crucial that Brand Hub doesn't have two ends. I think to have the two ends is kind of self-defeating and it's going to be really hard to sell the business and services you offer after that. So my natural position as an ex-domainer, so it's obviously coming up a lot, is to go look at, well, who owns other domains? Similar to that. So I'm not 100% sure where you're based, but for example, I looked at brandhub.com.au and noticed that that was a um, park domain which is potentially for sale from Cedo. Um, at the same time, I might go look at brandhub with just one end.com and you can see other sites that are there, which is which is not a great place because if you think about it, there's only really two scenarios that are going to play out here. Scenario one, you struggle to take off as a brand because people can't really remember it, in which case, you know, you never really got to have a chance to demonstrate, you know, how good you are at the service. Scenario two, which in some ways is even worse, is you do become successful, but then you have massive leakage of your brand traffic off to the person who owns the premium domain, the actual real domain. So I guess it's a difficult one to keep advice on from that side, um, because obviously I'm looking at your brand first. After that, I think, look, the other thing is really focusing and spending some time on your website and the way it looks and feels. I think it's going to be absolutely crucial for you that your brand, your website, and the way you portray it needs to be super slick. At the moment, there's a lot going on with your website. I think the animated snowflakes is very sort of late 90s in terms of website design. I'd be really keen for you to see you guys pick a new domain and then throw up a, a template from Wix or a Squarespace. On one side, you kind of look at these and you think, oh, it's just Wix or it's just Squarespace, but these sites look amazing now. And, and as a brand, I don't think you have to communicate a huge amount through your website. I think you can actually keep it really slick. I think um, minimal is probably the way you need to go. So I'd be, for your website in itself, I'd really be focused on minimal. And why do I say these two things? Well, what am I thinking of when I look at this and I say, look at your domain, look at your brand? Well, this is the thing about selling services online. There's very little people can use to assess you. So you know, your domain name, your website, I mean, that's basically it, you know, in terms of the last check. So this website has to look great. This website has to be slick. This website has to look like you really care about brands. And if you care about brands, then you're going to care about layout and design. So using a template that's going to work on every browser and every style. I mean, I'm looking at this on a, you know, Windows 10 Surface Pro looking through Chrome, but I could just as easily be using an iPhone 8, X, using a Safari browser, an Android phone. These are all very valid options. And, and at the moment, your site just doesn't really work across those. So I'd really recommend looking yourselves at the, the brand and something simple. Probably stay away from even using the brand in the actual domain. Like let's let's look for a, a domain or a brand for yourselves that's super slick and, and maybe doesn't actually say a huge amount. You borrow a leaf off the way I approached it and my naming my company uh, Fractal. It's not the perfect brand by any stretch, but it's one word. It means something. It can be spelt, but I get to make it into the brand that I want to make it into. Anyway, 
getting more specifically to your question and, and some you know ideas that I think everyone else can can sort of take away and use, I think the trick for service providers is not to try to do everything on their website. It's really around content and content distribution. So what we're doing is we're trying to present you guys as thought leaders. And the best way to be a thought leader is to share those thoughts. Look, there's there's a general rule, which is you should be able to talk about all the different strategies and still retain a whole lot of value in what you do. So what I mean by that is you should be able to sort of create bespoke documents, detailed documents, talking about specific areas of, of brand marketing and, and how come come up with brands and add a lot of value and position yourself as a thought leader's the reality is it's actually a lot harder to execute. So you can give someone all the answers, all the ingredients, but it's kind of like a recipe when you're making you know, a cake. It's one thing to say to somebody, this is what the cake is going to look like. These are all the ingredients. This is even the method. You can hand all that to me. I'm still going to make a horrendous cake. And that's the way I want you to think about your business as a service business online. Give away the ingredients. Give away the method, give away the final product, give everything you possibly can to help people. Don't hold anything back. The reality is for services that provide real value and require real talent to deliver, you know, the people aren't going to be able to do it. But what they are going to do is see you as an authority. They're going to see you as the person with the answers, with the method, with the process, and they're going to trust you to deliver all of that knowledge into what you do. It's actually really hard to validate everything that you're going to do for a brand in one of these services. You know, you can spend a long time justifying your decisions, but if the person's read your content already and, and they've considered what you would potentially be considering, you've done a lot of the pre-sale for you. The other thing about content is it's absolutely fantastic for you know distributing online. You know, use LinkedIn, use Twitter, the more professional channels, and and put your content out there. Partner with people, you know, approach other websites, web hosts small business startups, accounting firms, whatever it might be, and offer to write articles for them. You know, there's enough accounting firms out there with small businesses coming to them in local areas. They don't really have anything to say. They've got emails. I get my accountants send me a newsletter every month and it's so dry and so dull. There's never a huge amount in there. But if you were to write something that was for them, for their clients, but used your brand, I think you'd find a really high take up. So I'd really focus around Create a nice brand for yourself, a brand that is nice and clean. Carry that through to a super slick website. You don't have to spend a lot of money. Like I said, Wix or Squarespace are just really valid options now with so many fantastic templates. Keep it minimal. Don't put too much onto your website. Don't try to save too much on your website. Keep that looking premium, slick. Make sure it's compatible with every kind of browser. And then focus all your efforts on writing down your thoughts and distributing that content to as many different providers as you can. Post it on LinkedIn, share it, grow your audience, post it on Twitter, follow people, engage. Look, one of the best things you can do on both Twitter and LinkedIn is actually be the listener um, and offer value. So what I mean by that is social media channels these days are full of people shouting and not many people listening. It would be absolutely amazing if you became one of the people that listened to what people were shouting about and responded and added value. It'd be an amazing way for you to build up traction online. So Instead of being just one more person shouting out on Twitter and making posts, why don't you put all the effort into replies? Because that's what people can respond to. It's amazing. You look at the number of businesses that are tweeting frantically trying to get some kind of traction to an audience that really doesn't care what they say on Twitter. If you're the one person who's on there who makes a valid comment, you're probably going to pick up a follow. You're probably going to win a little bit of love back from that particular brand. And that can be a fantastic um 
guerrilla way to kind of get your brand out there. So I guess in a nutshell, you know, content's going to be your friend, you know, use your experience, use your knowledge, share as much as you possibly can. Again, think of it a bit like a recipe, share all the ingredients, share the method, share the final product. And you're going to find that people will find a way back to you. Eventually, some people will solve it. Some people will take your instructions and do a really good job. That's actually not a bad thing. You know, two great things come from that. One, you've got someone who genuinely values what you're doing and, and will be grateful. And secondly, you can feel good about it. You've helped somebody. But what you're going to find in most cases is that people look at it and say, do you know what? I'm just going to ask Brand Hub to go and actually do all the work for me because they seem to know what they're talking about. I hope that helps. Um, I look forward to seeing some changes and um, on the, you know, maybe your brand and the way you can position your website. And um, look, when you produce your first content, you know, send it through to me on LinkedIn and um, I'll give you my friendly comment and help spread the love from my end as well. Good luck. So lastly, on uh, today's podcast, I just want to cover off a company I've been doing some work with about 16 weeks now, um, and it's called Powerwells. That's uh, powerwells.org. And what the Powerwells guys do is they've come up with this really novel way to provide power to remote communities around the world that don't have regular land supplied power. So what they do is they find large containers where they drop uh, recycled laptop batteries into them and then use solar panels to charge up the batteries. And the idea behind this is they're not looking to provide mains um, power supply to communities. What they discovered was that these remote communities, their mobile phone is actually an absolutely essential tool. Now, at first pass, you think mobile phone, that's a, it's a luxury, but in a lot of these remote communities, and they've done a lot of work in Indonesia, they discovered that their mobile phone is their only form of communication. And that's not just to chat to people. This is about emergency communication, trade, any kind of information into the community. It's also often their only source of light. Um, which was another amazing fact. So what the power wells are designed to do is during the hours where these remote communities, who are typically farmers, are out working the land, the solar panels charge up the old lap recycled laptop batteries, so you're reducing e-waste, and it allows the community to come plug their phones in at night, charge them up to remain connected to the rest of the world, to give them some light so that they can do things like prepare dinner um, and extend the number of useful hours in the day. Anyway, I met these guys um, at the Logan um, Startup Weekend and meeting Nick and Brad, you, while they didn't actually have a great idea of exactly how they were going to go about this, one thing was abundantly clear and that was these are two guys with a heap of passion and a really sort of strong desire to do something. So I quickly went from mentor to um, permanent mentor, so I guess weekend mentor to permanent mentor and started donating a lot of my time to these guys. And what we did is we sort of set ourselves a really ambitious goal, which was to sit down and we said, can we go from zero, start at weekend, to running a successful crowdfunding campaign that would finish in January, which gave us a total of 12 weeks from the two founders meeting each other to actually launching a crowdfunding campaign and hitting the target within 12 weeks. So what I wanted to share with everybody was really, <clears throat> I guess, my approach and how we did that. The end of the story is good. We hit our target. We want to raise $12,000, which we did. But I think what's really interesting is a couple of lessons we learned. One of the key things we did was that we built an audience first. So we went back and we started all you know, the people we had at the beginning with the Logan Startup Weekend people. So got them, added them to a Facebook page, 
and then decided, okay, well, Facebook's going to be our primary method of communication. So we picked one channel, we decided to be really good at it. Any other channels we got, we decided that was going to feed towards Facebook. Again, it's one of those things where it's easier to be successful on one medium rather than trying to spread yourself too thin. And everywhere we went, everyone we spoke to, the guys just encouraged people to follow them, to like them on Facebook, to see the posts. Everything they did was directing people through to Facebook. So what we were really doing is we were building an audience. And the idea behind the audience was people that had met the guys, met somebody, heard something, and could engage in some different way. The bigger that audience was, the day we decided to launch, the, the day we launched, sorry, the crowdfunding campaign, we had somebody to talk to. And the key to these crowdfunding campaigns, and you know, I've only run one, so this is this is an experience of one, is that if you launch and have zero dollars in the bank, you're going to struggle. So what we did is we, as soon as we launched, we had a few bankers, people who we knew were going to come in to make donations. So right from the very word go, we had money coming in. I guess following the theme of today's podcast, I'm talking about domains, I'm talking about South Godden, Godden um, talking about tribes and, and another thing in his book, he talks about the need for the, the first person to jump out there and do something and say, I'm going to start a movement. And the absolutely crucial thing to the tribe is the second thing. Once you have a second person who joins in, you've got a tribe. That makes it really easy for person three, four, five, and six to come along. Sitting back with zero dollars on a crowdfunding campaign, waiting for the first person to drop a dollar is absolutely gut-wrenchingly, excruciatingly hard to do. You, you're sitting there saying to yourself, this is never going to happen. No one wants to move first. So having two bankers at the very start made a massive difference for us. It meant that the momentum was there. and People thought, yes, I'm going to get behind this and I'm going to give them a few dollars as well. And obviously the, the first two people that helps if they're making reasonable donations. Over the course of that uh, campaign, which we ran for four weeks, we really focused on the story. We focused on the why. The amazing thing was with Nick and Brad is that they were really clear on their why. And it was really clear to everybody else who read their story and watched their videos as to why they were doing it. The amazing thing was they didn't really know how. They still don't really know exactly how. We had sort of what. So we knew what we were going to deliver, which was these power wells. Exactly how wasn't known. So it gets to this really interesting Simon Sinek quoted thing around getting to why and understanding your why. We were able to successfully raise $12,000 and we didn't even really know how, and we still don't know how we're going to get the power wells exactly in. We knew what we were doing and we knew why we were doing it. And it was the why that made a difference for these guys. A couple of other key things we did in the crowdfunding campaign. Every single time somebody donated, sent them a thank you email. That's the automated one, but Nick was in there sending personal emails saying thank you, giving the person at the same time some collateral that sort of said, hey, can you post this and share it? So, and when they did, and then we were sort of posting and thanking them on social media. So really showing the the movement. We sold the story to news spots. We got some great coverage on the Brisbane Times, 4ZZZ, ABC Radio. And the reason we did is you get one go. You get one go at telling these stories. And so... We knew it was a momentum play. We knew we could get some press, we could get some coverage, but it was something that was going to eventually die down. So there was no real reason for us to kind of run this campaign for 12 weeks. It was really, we had one shot, one go at the story, had to draw a line in the sand. And the exciting thing for us was it was actually the last few thousand dollars goes quickly. So effectively in the crowdfunding, we launched, we started quickly. The middle was a real low. 
took a lot of people, a lot of $10 and $20 donations. And then as you get to the end and people can see that you're inside, once you got got past $10,000, we kind of didn't doubt we were going to get there because you get to a situation where the people that have already backed you and the people that are thinking about it don't want you to fail. Um, the thing about a crowdfunding campaign is when you set that mark and we set it at $12,000, if we had raised 11900 it would have been a failure because we wouldn't have got a single dollar. You've got to get to the 12000 You can't go under. But the great thing is when you do get close, you do find you tip over the end. So really, you know, the, the key to the campaign for us was that we launched with some backers. We had an audience and we kept building the audience. Two, we really focused on the why, why we were doing Power Wells and what we hope to achieve from it. And thirdly, we just kept the communication going. We focused on the explosive start, did as much PR as we could drive towards the uh, the story and got it over the line. So I don't think um, you know, Power Wells is typical. You know, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a B Corp style setup. But the one definite thing I'd recommend for anybody is if you're going to do any kind of crowdfunding campaign is make sure you build up a real audience before you get started. So that's the end of my uh, first podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. I've had a good time recording it for you. Um, if you'd like to be featured or you have any questions you'd like me to address in future podcasts, just head over to fractal.com.au and follow the links through to the LinkedIn page where you can drop some comments down under this episode's links. In those comments, and I'll, I'll put some notes in the uh, description there, but just try to describe what your company is, the name of it, the URL is absolutely important. Explain to me who your customers are, the problem that you're solving, and then finally, in a little bit of detail, one or two lines, what's the question you'd like to ask me for me to address in the next podcast? Um, those questions on LinkedIn almost always form the basis for each of my podcasts each week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to answering your questions in future podcasts, and um, we'll see you next week. Cheers. Cheers.